You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. On today's episode, we get a glimpse of, uh, we hear that JT maybe has a perfect plan for the church, or, or a perfect church plan. I thought you did. Uh, I don't. Do you have a perfect plan uh, for the church? No, I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> I think that's what we're all doing. Mm-hmm. Well, today we're going to ask the question, is there a perfect church that we see in Acts? Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. Spoiler, there isn't. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the discussion. All right. Hey, y'all. What's up? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm ready to jump into hearing about the perfect church. Mm. You guys have the plan, right? You guys, You guys have the plan for the perfect church? If we do, JT has not revealed it to me yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding my cards pretty close on this one. Oh, you guys I'm waiting for the right you team guys to remember work that with. office episode where they're interviewing new managers and they're interviewing that one guy who's going to, after Mike, Michael's going to leave, right? They're interviewing that one guy who's like, yeah, I've got a foolproof plan to like turn this office around. And they're like, well, tell us your plan. And then he's like, I can't give you my plan. <laughs> I can give you the first part. And he's like, color tabs. <laughs> And they're like, well, we're going to need to know, know more to hire you. He's like, I can't give you away, can't give away a plan. So that, is that how you treat your perfect plan for a church? Yeah, I can't give it to you guys. Well, I'm sure. waiting for the right team to show up. Yeah, so... You know, uh, ouch! No, not you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he pointing at? Yeah, he's pointing at you. Um, well, today, hey, I, I, don't know that, I don't know that I have plans for the perfect church, but I know that you have the perfect church tagline. Uh, we're not talking about that on there. Why are we not talking about <laughs> no, this? No, we're moving forward. Um, uh-uh, uh-uh. Jen, I think no, Jen should no. be the deciding factor. Here. No, another day. Okay, here's the thing that you guys need to know about Kyle. Kyle has the best church tagline for Mosaic Church. We don't have to talk about it now, but I need you guys to ask him. We're going to talk about it at some point. One day, ask him. one day I'll tell the story, mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. but it's not today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Today we're going to look at Acts 3 through 5, and we're going to look at the right what a lot of people... A lot, I, I name this the perfect church because... A lot of people, when they're like describing, like, man, you know, the church today is so messed up. We should just go back to the church of the New Testament. If you kind of like, t- if the, if you ask them, well, where are we going to go to look at that? They will go to Acts two forty two through forty seven, mm-hmm. which we talked about briefly the last time we were in Acts, and then they'll jump into Acts three, and they're going to start talking about, yeah, this is what it looks like. I mean, look, they were sharing everything, they were living their life together, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and there are, like you said, Acts two forty two through forty seven is this pronouncement. Of the, that the birth of the church is good, mm-hmm. that it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So we're not downplaying the fact that the existence and birth of the church is a good thing and was started in a good way. And there's health there. And we yeah. want to look at that as a mirror to reflect in. But there can sometimes be the illusion, and you don't have to wait very far in the book of Acts to find out that it is an illusion, that what appeared to be the ideal and perfect church was quickly disrupted by brokenness. Right. Right? So today we're going to look a little bit about what was happening after Pentecost, the birth of the church, and was there really a perfect church in the book of Acts? And so post-Pentecost, all throughout Acts, we start seeing these miraculous things happen. And Acts 3, right after Acts 2, you start to see some of these things unfold, right? You see somebody is healed. We see miraculous healings. What are we to make of all these healings? Like in Acts 3, there's this lame beggar, Mm -hmm. and he's healed. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. I don't know this song, but I'm <laughs> about it. In the name of Jesus Christ. Oh my gosh, Jen. You don't what? know that one? No. no. Didn't you guys go to church when you were kids? No. I did go to church, but Jen, if you had told me when we started Knowing Faith that you would do the most singing on this podcast. I'm musical. You really come strong. Yeah. 
I'm, but I'm waiting for you to start really rapping because JT and I get to see you rap all the, all time, the time. But a lot of people don't know that that's a huge part of how you view your public this is ministry. A falsehood. And when you say things like that, it makes me want to tell people the tagline for your perfect church. Okay, let's keep it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we see these miraculous healings. Um, here, here's here's my big question: Why all this? Like these healings are happening. It's not Jesus anymore that's out there healing. Yes, it is. Oh, Duke. It is. Okay. I think that's actually well, exactly about. what's going on. Great. Tell me. Is Jesus is continuing his ministry now through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church? Yes, that is true. Okay. I'm sorry. But you said Jesus. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And this story of the lame beggar, Peter and John are participants. They're, they're participants in this healing activity, mm-hmm. right? Right. Okay. But in the gospel accounts, would you might say that Jesus was the principal actor? Well, I think that's the, the, the narrative Visible. arc here, like the okay, theological okay. narrative arc. That's good. Visible. Yeah, yes. that's good. Yes. Uh, but I think that's the point that Luke is trying to make, okay. is that the church is now an extension and the continuation of Jesus's ministry on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the narrative arc that has changed between the gospels and here is his ascension, is he's now in heaven doing this through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, and Peter and John are just merely, what are they? Instruments? Tools? Conduits? Yeah, yeah I think they're spirit-filled instruments. Okay. Being obedient mm-hmm. to the promptings and callings of God. And they're seeing the authentication of the gospel ministry go out in their healing people. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the account in Acts 3 is actually kind of summarized under a much broader label. It seems like there was a lot of these out. In Acts 5, it says verses 12 through 16, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Mm -hmm. They were all together by Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Mm -hmm. And the people who also gathered from the town around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay, so it's like what you're seeing in the Acts 3 account of this one lame beggar seems to be indicative of there was a lot of this happening, mm-hmm. right? Does God still heal? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Like this? Like Peter's shadow? Because there, there, are, there are faith communities, like very, very big influential faith communities that would say what we're reading here is not descriptive of a moment, of a time, Mm -hmm. of a period, of an era. And they would say, yes, God still heals. They would answer the question Mm -hmm. that way. They would answer that question the same. Mm -hmm. But like this, like Peter's shadow, like lay people out and allow the shadow of someone to drift over them, a holy man like Peter, that they might be healed. Does God still heal like this? (coughs) Sorry. I'm actually joking. She needs a cough drop and to be healed. <laughs> I thought it was going to be one joke, but it was more. Okay. We're all super hungry right now because it's almost lunchtime and it I is. ate a tiny little snack of nuts and it's now going to be a joke. Okay. Uh, at a convenient time because I'm avoiding answering a question. No, I don't, I'm not avoiding answering it. I'm thinking about um, what I hope is a biblical theology answer, okay. which is not meant to be the full answer, but something for your consideration. One of the ties that I see between the way that the Spirit works in Acts is to the way that the Spirit works in a book that you might not immediately think of when you think of the book of Acts, and that's the book of Judges. 
where the spirit does these sort of spectacular things and they happen according to a rhythm. And it's a rhythm that we actually saw in first and second Samuel as well, that um, when someone is um, basically proclaimed the servant of the Lord, there is some demonstration, a supernatural occurrence that happens to validate that that is who that person actually is. And so that's the pattern that you see with, you know, probably the best known would be Samson for most people in the book of Judges, but it's a pattern for uh, many of the other judges as well. And we saw it with Saul and we saw it with David. And I have to wonder if we aren't seeing a little bit of that picked up on here in the book of Acts, that we've seen the church established as, hey, this is the witness through of Christ, you know, in the world. And now it's going to be validated by this miraculous sign. That's interesting. Now, does that mean that it should be normative? I think that's a really big question. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I you know, that's very similar, I, I think, in part to how Edwards approaches the supernatural, I was just miraculous really? religious affections. Yep. That makes me feel better about he talks, my... He talks about clustered spiritual activity okay. being an indication or an affirmation of a particular movement. Mm-hmm. The movement could be judgment. The movement might be revival, mm-hmm. but of a movement of God in mm-hmm. the world. But it's kind of specific. It's, a, it's really event heavy mm-hmm. and that it's non-normative. And he kind of looks throughout religious history and says, hey, there's been a pattern of these things, but it's not like it's the day in, day out routine. Well, and that brings us back to this hermeneutical principle that we want to stick to with the book of Acts. We do want to maintain firmly that this is descriptive, that it's not commanding us to do any of these things. Um, But in its descriptiveness, it is building patterns and associations for us that might be teaching something that extends beyond just what it's describing. Yes. So... I think then the question you have to ask is, well, if if in this particular moment in the history of the church, this kind of validation was appropriate and necessary, are there still those moments today? Right? And wouldn't that be where the argument would go? Yeah, I think so. That, well, there's a couple of questions. One is what's happening here distinct to the apostolic office, which is one very okay. significant line yeah. of argumentation. Mm-hmm. That um, that some would suggest that hey, what's happening here? It's happening among the apostles. It's, among, it's happening among the apostles because they held a particular office at a particular time, an office which is not in continuance. And I would agree that the apostolic office is not an office that continues yes. mm-hmm. beyond the scope. And of that's the really important. I think it's important for well, what's a, what's a couple of reasons why? It's important? I think this conversation also yeah. for uh, the writing of the New Testament. Yeah, the author- right? uh, authority mm-hmm. of words mm-hmm. that to. to to say apostolic authority is to say these are the people who receive the inspired word of God, yep. revelation. Who receive the teaching of, I mean, this is what we just read in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right. Yeah, so to claim apostolic office is to claim, I think, an office that is no longer claimable. Mm-hmm. Well, and talk about <laughs> the danger word? associated with that. Like, yeah. where, what, you know, where does that lead to? Yeah. Yeah, it could, uh, to abuse of authority, often. Well, right. So, right, but it means that anything that that apostle is saying is... It, well, almost infallible. You might say not. ex-cathedra. Yeah, yeah and even yeah. like privileged access to God yes. that the apostles did have with Jesus that, mm-hmm. that now... Like, you'll actually hear this sometimes of people canonizing people they feel have a close relationship yeah. with Jesus. Like, well, this person is so close with the Lord that yeah. their insights are just... It's like, it's, can, it's canonizing somebody. Yes, that is apostolicizing somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you also say it's an, uh, a Gnostic impulse? Mm, I've, I've not thought of it that way. Mm. In what way, do you think? Well, the, the, oh, this person knowledge. has a special yeah. knowledge oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. not all of us yeah, has access sure. to. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Really? For sure. Um, but I do think to the answer, if the question is, does God still heal? Yes, is for the sure. answer to that. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean, like, just 
not, not to be past that theologically, like if you're struggling with yeah. an ailment, disease, like you should ask God to heal you. Yes. You should mm-hmm. gather friends and ask them to pray for you. Like yeah. this is a, I think an important thing of God working supernaturally in our world that yes, he works through common graces of doctors and medicine, but to ask God to do what we clearly see him doing in the pages of the New Testament is in line with historic mm-hmm. Christian orthodoxy. And even more importantly than that, just a, 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 a fervent, vibrant belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that, and I think too, that it can be really, when we start talking about how God heals, we can quickly slip into a distinction. I don't think the Bible is making it all that there is a way in which God can heal that's natural and a way in which he can heal that's supernatural. Like I love seeing this in the ministry of Jesus. There are times when Jesus like pronounces somebody like, Hey, get up and walk. There are Mm -hmm. other times where he's like, Hey, go over to that pool Mm -hmm. and swim around the pool. Then there are other times where he spits in mud and puts it on somebody's eyes. I think Jesus is confounding any kind of supernatural, natural distinction in healing. I think he just is over and over again. That's what he's doing. Um, And so I think for us to say, well, does God still heal supernaturally? I would say God only heals supernaturally and that every healing, no matter whether it happened in a hospital or in a church is a supernatural healing. I haven't heard someone say that before that way. Well, I think part of it is because we buy into a naturalist conception of the universe and that supernatural activity is seen as disrupting that, whereas Mm -hmm. the the universe is not natural in any way. It's categorically supernatural in both its origin and its telos. So everything is supernatural and nothing is natural. We should do a podcast on that. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting. Um, Okay, so God still heals. He is always healing supernaturally because he's God doing this work, Mm -hmm. whether through doctor or by divine decree or mud in the eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and maybe I think that I want to kind of land the plane too on the apostolic thing. I think that regardless of how you, if you think that what we're saying is a, uh, a pattern of divine miraculous healings, or if it's something else, I think that the one thing that I would want us to be really clear about is I think to say it is apostolic in nature and the apostolic office still exists. I feel like that's an area where you can't go. That's it's it's beyond the scope of what Acts has in mind for mm-hmm. us. Do we agree with that? Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So um, moving forward, Peter is at Solomon's Portico. Right. Where is this at? Does anybody know? Yeah. Okay. I don't know where Solomon's Portico is. Well, interestingly, it's in the temple. Oh well, there you go. Which is kind of significant because what we keep seeing here, even you saw it uh, in. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And remember, this is after Pentecost. Right. And they're still observing temple worship. Hmm. I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And, of course, we're, we know that Peter's storyline is going to build out to where we understand that he's the one who is most sort of stuck in this in-between place between being Jewish and being Christian. And so I think that— Well, it's one of his big roles in Acts, right? Yeah, that's going to be his—yeah, it's going that's what we'll see develop. But I think it's significant that Peter and John still seem to be observing Jewish practice at this point. Well, this becomes—yeah, yeah, go ahead. This becomes the, one of the primary questions of the New Testament yeah. of— what does it mean to, if you've placed your faith in Christ, what kind of boundary markers remain for a Jew and Gentile right. to distinguish them from being either Jewish or not Jewish, but now more importantly, Christian? Well, and that's that's such a, I feel like we're coming to it because when we're, we're getting there. So in Acts 3 uh, and 4, the end of Acts 3, when Peter's in Solomon's portico, in Acts 4, when they're before the council, I do think this is the moment, and maybe I'm wrong here, where you start to see that Christianity is is definitely going in a different direction than Judaism. You like, see, I, I agree with you, but I would say that becomes clearer like in Acts 10. Okay. 
Well, because here it's like they tell them before the council, like, hey, don't tell anybody else about Jesus, right? But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we can't speak but what we have seen and heard. It's definitely something that's happening across all of Acts, right? Well, actually, I think what you're probably seeing here is what what Jesus, what JT... That's what you've been waiting for, right? Me to confuse you with Jesus. What JT alluded... I'll now give you the plan for the perfect church. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm ready for you to descend into hell. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Wow. Whoa. That was a bad joke. No, that was pristine. Okay, anyway, so what JT alluded to earlier, or he was kind of sassy about, about how, no, this is still a picture of the work of Christ, right? And, And I think what we're seeing here is the spirit working through the apostles to um, to motivate them, to inspire them to behave just as Christ behaved during his earthly ministry, which was he 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 went before the Jewish leaders and he provoked them to anger by by stating the truth. Right. So they're they're sort of they're walking in Jesus' footsteps. Yeah, they are. And uttering the very things that Jesus would have uttered in the same place. Yeah, but you, you, you and you can feel the, the the tectonic plates shifting. And I think that's what I'm getting at in, in three and four. You can feel like the foundation is moving a little yeah. bit because after Pentecost, you have to imagine that, and I think this is one of the reasons why they're before the council, that you have to imagine that there is now this real awareness that the, that the way of Jesus is not going away. Right. And that it's the only way they have before them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that Peter really steps in as a translator, as a connector Mm -hmm. between this huge story of God's people, Israel in what Jesus has done. And now Peter is like, it's not like this all falls into place for him immediately because you're right. It's, you know, even much later, Peter is very much struggling with how to reconcile the scope of what God is doing, particularly as it relates to Gentiles and God's mission to the Gentiles mm-hmm. and his incorporation of them into covenant blessings. But but even right here, you can see that they're saying, you know what? All of this, all of this Jewish story and heritage has been fulfilled in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we're going with that. Yeah. Right? Right. And... That's costly to them. Well, I think we should also talk about the context again for the book of Acts. We've talked about this before, about what Luke's purpose was in writing. It was to give them an orderly account and an assurance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we should ask, like, what's going on in the story? But we also need to ask, why is this particular um, scene given to us? Because Luke has, like everyone who writes, has picked and chosen what he is going to include. And there's Russ Ramsey has written a, a nice sort of a paraphrase yeah. retelling of the of the story of Acts, and one of the things he says in his introduction that just stuck. It was such a well phrased idea. Is he he talks about how at the time of its writing, <clears throat> and at the time of all of the books that we have it, written for us in the Bible, that you don't have reams of paper, you don't have extra pens, you don't have um, a, a word processing tool so that you can cut and paste or delete. And so he said the Bible is written in thrift. That was his phrase, and it just stuck with me. It is written in thrift. In mm. other words, everything that is included has been carefully chosen mm. because the the editing tool is not there. Yeah, I love that phrase. And so why is this scene put in here? And so also why does Luke's audience, why does Theophilus need assurance? 
because persecution is increasing. Right. And so here we're seeing, um, you know, he's saying, no, 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 the miracles testify to the truth of the message. So you can have assurance that these these apostles are actually sent right. from God. And then not only that, but their words are drawing exactly what you can expect your words to draw. And guess what? You're going to find out that the Lord delivers them. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. So they're released. Yep. And it says that they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. Doesn't that sound like the beginning of the Apostles' Mm -hmm. Creed? And the sea. sounds like what Rahab said, by the way. There you go. Mm -hmm. And everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves. So they're even right now, their self conception is they're becoming aware that they, like like Jesus are going to be opposed mm-hmm. by the forces of the world. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, they've seen it. They saw it happen to Jesus. Jesus said it would happen to them. Yep. It has happened. And from almost the, just the first breath of their new identity, it's happening. That's right. Mm-hmm. And they're conceiving of their identity as a people. They're like, we're going to be opposed by the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they enter into what might look like sustained, fervent and urgent prayer for the rest of Acts. And I got to say this Acts 4, 23 through 31. I love this because there is this cycle in the book of Acts. And actually I wasn't, I, I, I didn't discover this. There was a, uh, a guy I was listening to is a guy named Jeff Bradford. And he was pointing out the cycle in Acts where you see that uh, before there's this movement, there would be a, a time of sustained, fervent, and urgent prayer through mm-hmm. the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And you see the cycle happen over and over and over again. Um, and uh, that I, I think for me, just even in like ministry and then the culture, and when we think about world change and discipleship and transformation and all of the big things we want to see happen, even in a time period in which there were incredible like miracles and power and there was apostolic voice, what is the real kind of beginning of every cycle of movement? prayer. That's right. Mm-hmm. Sustained, fervent, and urgent prayer. And you see that in Acts. And I think a lot of times we want all of the thing, all of the fruit that comes from the kind of movement of prayer without really a movement of prayer. Yeah. But in Acts, it's from square one. That's just a part of what life in the church looks like. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. It feels a lot harder though, doesn't it? Like I'd rather go do something. Yeah. Just that's kind of the impulse of our of our culture. But I think here what you see modeled and patterned well for us is 
is God's the one who's doing this. Yeah. And in prayer, you're entrusting him to do the work that he's promised to do rather than taking this into your own hands. Yeah. And in some sense, building a ministry babble for yourself. Yes, that's a wow. wow. Yeah. Pulling back and saying, this is about God making his, his name great, not us making our name great. Mm. Yeah. And so we rest, we pause, we seek his face first because he's promised to make himself known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Oswald Chambers, right? Prayer isn't preparation for the greater work. Prayer is, is the, the greater, greater work. work. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you certainly see that in the flow of Acts. And, mm-hmm. But you get to Acts 5, so they've prayed. There's, there, there's a movement. You uh, End of Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, so that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, that everything in common, the, po- the apostles are giving powerful testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, not a needy perse- person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as need. There's this guy, Joseph. He sells a field that belonged to him, brings the money, lays it at the apostles' feet. Sounds so, pretty great. It's pretty great. It's a perfect church. And then you get to Acts 5, and the and weird stuff starts happening. <laughs> well, actually, I would argue that after you've read Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5 makes a lot more sense. Like, the story that we find of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, I had always heard it as a standalone. Right. Yes. Like, hey guys, sit down, let me tell you a little cozy story. And it was a morality tale yeah. about not lying. Right. Um, but the real awfulness of it is not understood until it's placed right after what you just read. Right. Yeah. Because then you see Ananias and Sapphira are not just lying to God, though they are lying to God, mm-hmm. but they're also subverting the entire witness of the community. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what they're becoming known for. And there's this radical generosity mm-hmm. and this ra- this sharing and like the body is together. So they're subverting, they're lying to God, they're subverting the witness of the church and mm-hmm. they're sowing really division mm-hmm. uh, and falsehood into the communal life of the church together, right? Yeah, and I think that what we're supposed to take from this is um, you read the first section about how great things are going and you find that obedience always results in collateral blessing. And that sin, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, sin always results in collateral yeah. um, devastation. That's you're absolutely right. That, that there's a, that there's there's no such thing as a non-communal yes. sin, and I would say there's no such thing as a non-communal obedience. Like all obedience is a benefit not just to the one who obeys, but to anyone in with whom they have relationship. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that a local church feels that. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, so if you're not, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase this down, but there's this guy named Sapphira, uh, Ananias, mm-hmm. and he has his wife, Sapphira. They sell a piece of property. They conspire with one yes. another. Yeah. They're, they're, they're co-conspirators here and they take some of the proceeds and they bring only a part of it and they laid it at the apostles' feet, it says. And then Peter says to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Um, And then, to make a long story short, his wife comes in and does the same thing. Mm -hmm. She lies as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, when you initially read the story, it's it's maybe not as clear hearing the reading like that, but the idea is that Ananias and Sapphira are pretending to essentially have brought, like, that's the idea here, Mm -hmm. is that you've sold every, it's not just that they sold it, 
and then brought it some in and kind of pretended as if it was some. I don't think that's what Peter's getting at. I think what we're supposed to understand about this story is they sold this piece of property under the guise of, hey, we're bringing all this to bear. Um, and probably, you know, you think about it just in terms of a new organization, a new institution, there was probably some sort of social capital that they expected to receive. Oh, for sure. And certainly the points that came with, look, Ananias and Sapphira, just like Joseph sold a field and brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, mm-hmm. Ananias and Sapphira have done the same thing. Man, mm-hmm. aren't they great? Mm-hmm. Isn't this awesome? And so it was really, it's not just that they sold something that belonged to them and kept some of it. It's that they sold something that belonged to them and then pretended as if they gave mm-hmm. all the proceeds. That's right. Um, and to kind of have both. So they, they didn't just steal money. They stole reputation. Yeah. When they tried to serve both God and money mm-hmm. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the questions that I often hear about this story is, wow, God just strikes them dead. Mm-hmm. Harsh. Harsh. Who is this Why God? Is God so harsh? Are Who there just... any other examples of God striking somebody dead? Mm. Oh, yeah. Right? Did you have one in mind, JT? <laughs> I, didn't we do a study on Samuel? Mm, yes, mm. we did. Uh, yeah, this is, um, and there's really no easy way to talk about it, right? It, other than to, to be reminded of the seriousness of sin. Yeah. And to presume upon God's grace is to presume, yeah. and we shouldn't, because grace is grace. Yeah. It's not uh, deserved. Yeah. And here you have a situation of, of uh, two people lying to yeah. God mm-hmm. and doing so willfully, mm-hmm. believing that it didn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all sin matters to God. Yeah. This is, it's forsaking the events that happened just months previously in the crucifixion and resurrection of the son and the defeat of, of Satan's sin yeah. and death. Mm-hmm. And to presume upon that shows that, that they have not taken the seriousness of their own sin to heart. Yeah. yeah. All right. I have a, I have a rabbit trail. Are you ready? Yeah. Um, so in my world of women's ministry, they love to do character studies on women of the Bible. And Sapphira is actually a pretty significant figure that we should pay attention to. She helps us with the, um, the skill of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, help us understand when, what something is saying or is not saying based on what is elsewhere in the Bible. And so, um, so often women are told, they, they hear from Ephesians 5, uh, that wives should submit in, in everything to their husbands. And if that's taken to an extreme, then Sapphira is a godly woman. Mm. She submits to her husband in all things. But this is actually an example of an act of unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, God has punished her unjustly mm-hmm. um, because she's been obedient to do the will of her husband. And if we misread what Ephesians 5 is saying, then we would have to judge her as righteous. But instead, we pay more attention then to what Ephesians 5 says. And it says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also Mm -hmm. should wives submit in all things to their husbands. In other words, why does the church submit to Christ? Because Christ only asks that which is righteous and beneficial. Uh, And so then we're able to better understand what, what godly submission should look like in any relationship. I, I, I never put that together. Never thought about that. So you don't hang out with the ladies enough. <laughs> That's probably true, Jen. That's probably just fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great observation, though. I need to think more about that. But I, I, that is a really interesting connection. About t- uh, This is a good demonstration of that kind of wooden reading. Yeah. And honestly, mm-hmm. eisegetical reading, kind of isolated reading. Just a blunt instrument application mm-hmm. of the text, it's, I think, is what you, you come across a, good a lot of times. It's a good point. So the church is not perfect. Church is not perfect. But God is perfect in his judgments. That's right. 
Um, and as the story continues, we find out that, man, the Jewish leaders are really starting to get agitated with apostolic witness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's growing, and, and they're right. realizing we have to increase the pressure on them right. because they're not stopping what they're doing. And yeah. so we've got to we've got to put them in jail. Right. So what is the principal objection or roadblock that they have for the Jewish leaders? I'm, I'm looking at Acts 5, 17 through 32, and particularly verse 27. It says, and when they had brought them, this is they have uh, brought uh, Peter, and the apostles, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name being Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Um, what's their principal objection? It's got to be Jesus isn't God, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're teaching in the name of someone that's been condemned mm-hmm. and you've brought his blood upon us. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're making us guilty or something that we think we did right, which is to judge this person who claimed to be God and wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter is still saying the same things that he said in his sermon in yep. Acts 2, mm-hmm. which you've already talked about. He's, right. The message is continuing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. This is the Lord Jesus who before the foundations of the mm-hmm. world, according to a predetermined plan, was coming. Yep. But you killed him. You killed him. You killed him. Yeah. And here, you're still bringing his blood upon us. Right. And we can't have that anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we have a religious... Uh, uh, popularity contest at mm-hmm. stake. We, we will lose our mm-hmm. credibility for doing what we do if you keep saying that we crucified somebody that we shouldn't have mm-hmm. crucified. Yeah. You're saying we actually crucified God himself. Right. Yeah. And we, so you have to stop. Yeah, because he doubles down on it. When he responds to them by saying, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. So now he's invoking the God of our fathers as an invocation of, hey, the God of our fathers. He's talking to other Jews. He's saying mm-hmm. the God of Abraham mm-hmm. and Moses mm-hmm. and Jacob, right? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses. And it says in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Mm-hmm. So that's their, their objection is. You're not only are you saying that this person was God, you're saying that he was the God of our fathers, mm-hmm. that we were wrong and are guilty for having killed him, and that God, the God of our fathers, who this person was, also raised him from the dead and has exalted him. Mm-hmm. And from the Pharisees' perspective, like if if they're right, they should be this angry. Right? Mm-hmm. They're they're wrong, of course. Yes. Which is, mm-hmm. but but at the same time. Like, you, this tension is so great for them that they're not acting unreasonably yeah. mm-hmm. according to their theological understanding of what God was doing in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, some things, I think we need to read the Pharisees with a bit more empathy, not empathy that they're putting the apostles in prison, but like they're trying to follow the tradition of Isaiah and We're Jeremiah. Like, hey, why are you guys so mad? You're the right. bad guy. Right. You know, yeah, because, instead of, no, they, yeah, this is exactly what right. you, response you should expect. Yeah, this, I mean, the storyline of the Old Testament is Israel keeps walking into syncretism and they keep you know, worshiping the gods of the nations. Mm -hmm. And so you have the prophets rise up and say, keep yourself pure. Don't worship Mm -hmm. the gods of the nations. Mm -hmm. And so a Pharisee would have have seen themselves, especially in here, you have in Jerusalem with Roman occupation as being zealous for Yahweh. And they're trying to protect Mm -hmm. uh, their religion. Yeah. And Israel's identity. And Israel's identity. To to not do that would be to not listen to the prophets. But they just misread the prophets. Yeah. But not all of them are so adamant. 
We have this guy named Gamaliel. This, one, this one's fascinating. It is, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, what's the gist of what Gamaliel says? He basically, I mean, it's his his words are famous. You hear them taught a lot yeah. um, as, an, as a model of godly wisdom. He basically says, look, if this isn't of the Lord, it will not prosper. And if this is of the Lord, then it will. Mm-hmm. So yes. we don't actually have to be active agents in trying to demolish this. We can just take a wait-and-see approach and let it play out. A long, a long view a on long ministry view. is a really important thing. Well, and I think that often we underestimate the length of the long view. Yeah. Like when, when Gamaliel says, you know, if this is of the Lord, if it's not of the Lord, it won't last. Like I think everybody can probably think of what we would consider to be fairly lengthy ministries that ended up not being of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and so I really wonder when I read this, like how long did Gamaliel think that this could be given? My guess would be that based on the pace of how things were going, he expected that it would not take long to show itself to be truth or error. Right. But that's not always the case. Certainly. Yeah. But it is these famous words, right? Like, hey, uh, what's he say? You know, um, take care what you are about to do with these mm-hmm. men. For before mm-hmm. these days, there have been others that have claimed up. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So it's essentially saying like, hey, other people have made these claims. Right. And listen, it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. He says, but, and then he said, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And it says they took his advice. Mm-hmm. And I love, I do love to, that it's also another picture of just God that the, like the, heart of the king is a stream in the hand of the Lord, mm-hmm. right? That like, here's Gamaliel who doesn't seem to be bought in on this at all. Right. We don't know really where his convictions are and where they end up, but we know at this moment he's, he's advising caution. He's advising caution. Mm-hmm. He's saying, you know, we really don't know. And the kindness of God that he uses these kinds of figures and leaders, right? Even in the midst of this persecution in this moment to say, you know what? Like, I'm going to withhold my hand from judgment mm-hmm. here, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to withhold uh, so to preserve my people. And it's a really beautiful thing. Where else does he show up in, this te- in the biblical text? In Gamaliel? Yeah. You know what? I don't know that I know this. He's Paul's teacher. Oh, you're mm-hmm. right. Yes. You're right. And so, so just to double down on what you're saying yeah. is I, I often think of when Paul later says, I'd be cut off for the sake of my kinsmen. Right. He's re- re- being reminded of his brothers that he would have studied with under Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I wonder, too, if there isn't some comparison here between him and Pilate. Uh, Pilate, mm-hmm. who basically says, I wash my hands of this. Yeah. But Gamaliel says, what if we just stayed our hand in this? Right. I wonder if there isn't some connection to be made there, too. Man, it's been fun yeah. so far with Acts. It's fun. Maybe maybe more fun than first and second Samuel? A little bit. Oh, you're so I'm bad. Sorry. I'm just going to keep doing it. Hey, Listen. you know what? Before we end, what you should make him do as a result of that little slight... Is tell no, the no, another day, timeline. another time. We uh, time is up today, guys. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, uh, we're going to jump back into the Apostles' Creed and we're going to ask the question, What did Christ do? See you next time. Grace and peace. <laughs>